used to be home Passing by those little towns I know so well Stopping for gas and then I'm behind the wheel again Driving this like a spiritual cleanse Where every mile is a new beginning And every friend holds a new end Eyes on the road, don't lose control I'm speeding fast to chase my soul I'm driving to get away Running through emotions high and low Holding on or letting go I'm fighting another day Neon lights in the fast lane light Riding high, reaching for the sky Back to Melia's performance podcast that was Fighting Another Day by the band Tyra, T-H-Y-R-A. I think I'm pronouncing that right. Anyway, welcome back to the second episode of Melia's performance podcast. Uh, staying on the fight theme this week in combat sports, I am joined today by Jordan Sullivan, commonly known as the Fight Dietitian, TFD. You'll see that gold logo maybe in the octagon or around fighters when you're watching uh, countdown shows or embedded shows if you're MMA fans. Now Jordan is a very interesting guy based in Brisbane in Australia however he works with lots of uh, MMA fighters across the world and particularly he's been working with City Kickboxing in New Zealand and if you are an MMA fan uh, you will know about City Kickboxing home of Israel Adesanya, Dan Hooker. Um, Israel Adesanya is the middleweight champion currently moving up to light heavyweight as well in the next couple of weeks also Alexander Volkanovsky from Australia, featherweight champion. Um, so we go through everything here related to the fight dietitian's work. His time on Fight Island recently, working with elite uh, fighters, male and female, ethnic variations or considerations he's taken to place, how to deal with multiple stakeholders in a fight camp, and basically anything kind of uh, combat sports nutrition and dietitian related there's lots of good stuff in here if you're a if you're a fight fan and if you're not a fight fan there's actually some interesting stuff in here or misnomers that we um put to bed in terms of diet and nutrition so like all these episodes there's always something to get out of them uh obviously applicable to many different disciplines 
So I hope you enjoyed the episode. Uh, if you want to check out Jordan's work, you can follow him on Instagram at The Fight Dietitian or his website, The Fight Dietitian. He's also got a podcast uh, called Fight Science as well, which you can go over and listen to free. Anyway, let's kick on into this episode. After all that moving, we're going. So, uh, this is, uh, I have Jordan Sullivan on today, commonly known as the TF, TFD, the Fight Dietitian. You may have seen his logo. Um, I was going to say, Jordan, stand up and show us your logo, but people are going to be listening to yeah, this. Yeah, they can't see again. It, is, it <laughs> is a nice big kind of goldy logo that says TFD. So, the Fight Dietitian. What exactly, Jordan, is a Fight Dietitian? Yeah, it's a bit of an uh, ambiguous term, I guess. First, uh, thanks for having me on, Ian. Uh, good to chat to you again. But yeah, it's an ambiguous term, I guess, because um, it's not like you go to university and you do a do an undergrad in sports nutrition. You're ever going to do like a class or a major in combat sports nutrition? Not 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 as it as it is right now, anyway. But I guess uh, I describe TFD and the Fight Dietitian as being a performance nutrition company that specialises with combat sport athletes combat sport athletes right so we're talking about mma people watching the ufc bellator um we've got what eternal here in australia we have like yeah. cage warriors in the uk there's multiple promotions around the world that would have mma then we have jujitsu then we have anything like wrestling even karate it's going to be in the next olympics taekwondo anything that's a weight dependent sport boxing kickboxing is that right? All it was. Yeah, judo, all those things. Oh, judo fencing, well. judo, fencing yeah. is a, is apparently a combat sport. Can't say I've ever had a fencing athlete, but apparently that's classed as a combat sport. Someone's well. going to come up now and whip you one those fencing <laughs> yeah. in the face when you're walking yeah, around. Yeah, that's right. That. <laughs> <laughs> I challenge you to a duel, sir. Yeah, that's right. Now probably whip me too. <laughs> <laughs> so all of these. Now, now Jordan, I am. Um, one of the one of the reasons I wanted to have you on the podcast is we've we've had Reed on before, Reed Real, who's obviously your idol and you worship Reed and we know that. <laughs> we know that you make effigies of Reed and you pray to the Reed God every week. But um <laughs> but um you you're probably you've got probably the most, I would say, a practical experience. If I look at the wall there behind you, you've got lots of pictures. Can you just list off for particularly our MMA fans some of the top level fighters that you are currently working with or have worked with because i think that's really important to start off with that to kind of show your credibility because i see your logo everywhere when i watch ufc these days and it's great to see it so give us a little yeah, bit of yeah. a rundown of who, you, who you're working with for sure i'd, I'd give reed a lot of grief but uh, i rolled with him quite a bit and fight on and he and he did smoke me so i'll, I'll hold my tongue but um at the moment so oh, at the no, moment jo in sorry jordan before you go on with that there is one way to beat reed there is one way to beat Reed, and I What's told that? Reed this before. So Reed might be a black belt, right? But I told Reed it's really easy. I will slap Reed into the face, and I will win. <laughs> Do you know why? Because I know I can run hundred miles. Reed can't. He'll never yeah. catch me. <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, he was, he was hitting the treadmill a lot in the gym last time. Maybe that's why. It was, maybe that's why he got us in these small rooms and we were rolling in there so we couldn't run around him. But um. Anyway, back to the question. TFD at the moment, I think we've got something of my last count. It was 85% of the professional MMA athletes that compete in the major organizations. That's a UFC, One Championship, Bellator. Um, so we currently look after all of the five fighters at City Kickboxing. So we got uh, UFC middleweight champ, Israel Adesanya. We've got Alexander Volkanovsky, the UFC featherweight champion at the moment. We've got Dan Hangman Hooker, Brad Quake Riddell, Kaikara France. Uh, Shane Young, uh, Carlos Uberg, who is fighting on Contender Series in about 50 minutes. I think he'll most likely get a get a contract and he'll enter into the UFC for the CKB's fifth, uh, sixth fighter. Sorry, uh, Luke Jamot, who's down in Hamilton in New Zealand. We look after him in Australia. We look after, um, I guess, the big names that people would realize. Not that he takes his diet too seriously. Tai Tuivasa, <laughs> um, Tyson Pedro, he takes his diet much more seriously than... Um, than um, Tyson, then we've got yeah, Nadia Kasim, Cal Potter, who just recently retired, Josh Coolabout, Jamie Malarkey, um, kind of 
I've definitely forgotten people and I apologize ahead of time. That, that, but, um, that, no, that's okay. That, that's a really good list. And then maybe what about past fighters? Who have you worked with in the past that people might recognize from the, from the old school? Well, to be honest, um, the first one I actually worked with, because I guess in the UFC, I really got my first UFC fighter probably about two and a bit years ago. And that was Ben 10. I don't know if you... Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah Ben Wynn was the first guy and he kind of introduced me. I guess that's because we're from the same city, right? We're from um, Brisbane. And then from... Ben 10, he actually introduced me to Tyson when I was down uh, in Adelaide a couple of years ago. And then that's kind of what started the cascade when I was down there. That's where I actually met Kai and it kind of started that. But Ben was officially my first UFC fighter that I worked with. And I don't know whether that was because I was actually good at what I was doing or it was just he didn't have any options because I was probably the only dietitian in town. So... Mm. So Jordan, you said like, you know, you don't really kind of go to uni and study this sort of, uh, sort of, you know, you don't go and do like combat sports nutrition per se, but what is your educational background in this field? Um, so how, how did you kind of, you know, get to this point before you started working with like Ben 10 and the rest of these fighters? Yeah, I, I studied a Bachelor of Exercise and Nutrition Science, and then um, I was silly enough to go back and do a Master's of Dietetics. And um, when I did my Master of Dietetics, I did put a lot of heavy focus in, in the sports nutrition, but even then... A lot of the focus for weight category sports wasn't really there. I think we did maybe two or three little lectures about it. And if I'm being honest, when I finished my master's, I wouldn't say I was necessarily totally prepared to do what I do today. I guess I got, I always tell a story as I started jujitsu after I finished my master's, I moved over to Canada and I lived over there. And that's when I really got into the MMA training. I did a lot of boxing and I really got into MMA over there. And as such, you have to start jujitsu. And I remember within the first few weeks, I started um, a jujitsu comp and I had to make weight for that comp. And in my mind, I was like, well, I've got a master's of dietetics. I can do this easy. And yeah, it, yeah. it wasn't, it wasn't easy. And then that's what kind of made me realize, like, there's not a lot of information out here either. And like, obviously I'd followed Reed for, for quite a bit at that time. He was doing his PhD and I'd followed like Clint Wattenberg, guys like that, Dr. Carl Evans and James Morton and those guys. But practically I was kind of a bit lost. I was like, I don't really understand this. I've got this Bachelor of Exercise and Nutrition Science. I've got a Master's of Dietetics. I've, I've majored in sports nutrition. It's like, why do I not know how to do this? And it, it was a pretty decent amount of weight. I think I moved something like 10 or 11 kilos over like eight to nine weeks or something. And um, not that I struggled, like I got it off, but it definitely, I look at what I self-prescribed myself back then and geez it's just not good but that was someone coming out of university with a master's degree yeah yeah which is a little worrying yeah and obviously then like you know you get all sorts of like you're saying like at the top end you know have an education in this area even you can you know maybe get it wrong or it's trial and error and you know it's it's particular it's a it's still a new field and i think it is a very very new field yeah. i couldn't but then you have everything all the way down to you know people in a local gym going you know, well, I've caught weight before. I was a fighter. You know, the men don't have any education in this background. And they get these crazy weight cuts where people are trying to cut like 10 kilos in 24 hours. And, you know, um, we've had, we have had debts around weight cutting. It's, it's, it's been well publicized. And, you know, I'm not going to go through all those individual cases and go, oh, well, this happened and that happened. But, um, you know, I think there's obviously a lot of dangers around weight cutting. And people like yourself and, and Reid are looking at safe and effective means to do weight cutting. Uh, over a period of time. Now, I've spoken to Reid a little bit on the podcast um, about weight cutting processes, um, but um, recently, actually having Reid on this week, we just spoke really more about the Fight Island experience, but could you just recap maybe, Jordan, um, or describe the process you use around weight loss before a fight and then kind of weight cut around the fight and then kind of the recovery period as well to get ready for the fight again? Those kind of three distinct phases. I think that'd be good for people to know what those are. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's important to, to realize that there are, like you said, there's three distinct phases. So you break it up into the first phase, which is this ambiguous term that we call the fight camp phase, which can be anywhere between four to six to eight to 10 to 12 weeks long. And in terms of nutrition and body composition manipulation, this is when we're losing body fat. So we're strategically putting these athletes in a calorie deficit. And the goal is to reduce their body fat to get them within an appropriate striking range of their contracted fight weight, where we can, in that second phase, which we call the fight week phase, which is post fight camp, where we can utilize things that we call these acute weight loss strategies or fight, fight week strategies, where we manipulate fluid in their body. And like you said, 
just before you hear of guys talking about weight cutting and doing 10 kilos and things like that, that's probably, you know, pretty extreme depending on their weight class, but in the evidence as it is now, and, you know, through, through work that I've done with, we Reed and Dr. Carl Evans and James Morton guys like that. We're pretty confident on what we think are pretty safe ranges to be manipulating fluid within the body in that fight week period. But then as you alluded to, there's that third period after the weigh-ins, which in my opinion is probably the most important one. Like it's fine taking up to six to 10% of fluid out of this person's body, but they've got to go into a cage in 24 to 36 hours and, you know, get punched and kicked and choked and everything. So you want to know how to put that back in. And that's what we call the post weigh-in period where you're replacing the fluid, the electrolytes, the glycogen. You're essentially going back and looking at the acute weight loss strategies that you used and you're going, okay, I took all of this out. How do I put all of this back in? Yeah, yeah. Now, Jordan, I don't want you to give away any secrets, however, and this, this podcast was scheduled before this announcement, but on the weekend, Dana met a very, Dana White, president of USC, um, made a very interesting announcement that Israel Adesanya, one of your clients, is going to move up to the light heavyweight division to fight Jan Blakovich. Now, this is the complete opposite, I suppose, of what happens in most fighters are obsessed with losing weight or reducing body mass for a particular weigh-in. Now you have a fighter that's going to go up to a, to a heavier weight division, um, and arguably people are going to be bigger. I know someone like Israel is pretty big anyway. Without giving away any secrets, I'm not asking you to, do indiv- to give us the individual plan of what's going to happen with Israel, but what do you do in general with a fighter that wants to move up weights or down weights? And you see this with McGregor as well. He was at featherweight, then he was at lightweight. He was up a welterweight. How do you deal with a fighter that wants to kind of start jumping up and be these multi-weight champions? What, what's your approach to that? Yeah, it gets, I guess it comes back to that first period that we we're just talking about that fight camp where I said for a lot of fighters, it's body composition manipulation. And we're trying to reduce that body fat for Israel. When he's going down a light heavy, he'll have to move a bit of weight, but not a lot. So we don't have to be as aggressive in that calorie deficit, which means what we do is just, we focus more on that performance nutrition principles and to lose weight you need to be in a calorie deficit there's no ifs ways or buts about it. you just got to be in a calorie deficit hold on jordan hold on jordan are you, are, you, are you trying to say that to lose weight you should consume less calories is that what you're saying yeah i know i know wow, this, is, this is revolutionary science the, there's, that... people, there's people out there on the paleo diet the five two the intermittent fasting that are falling over and they don't, they don't agree with this so, i know don't let the don't let the influencers <laughs> hear that but that's the thing is like, if you don't have to lose a lot of weight, you don't have to be in that. And I guess that's where the real art and science of like what I do and what Reed does and Carl and all these guys is that you're trying to get these guys to be in that calorie deficit, but maintain that performance throughout training. And that's when we use like principles of periodization where you're putting in carbohydrates for their most highest priority sessions to make sure say their sparring sessions or Tuesday night wrestling is as good as it can be, which with these lighter sessions, say more technical sessions, we can wind back those calories. When, when you don't have to do that, you can kind of be a bit more blanket, I suppose, and say, well, it doesn't necessarily, it's not necessarily a bad thing if we're overfueling because getting in that calorie deficit isn't so much of a concern. So someone like Israel, when he's fighting yarn next, it's, we're still using these performance nutrition principles except he's probably going to be feeling just as good as he goes into sparring as he is for every session that week, which is a bit more, I would say like traditional in loading up for a competition. Like, as you know, combat sports are probably the only sport in the world where you kind of deload for entire fight camp, deload even harder for a fight week and then go into your competition. So something like this, where Israel's gone up, we can do it more traditionally where you're loading the body up and fueling adequately and kind of going in there with all, all cylinders firing. Yeah. Yeah. But you, I think it's fair to say, Jordan, when I look at the fighters that you work with, um, and obviously, you know, I'm an expert because I sit here on my couch on a Sunday morning and watch UFC <laughs> fights, so I'm, I'm, a, I'm an expert, you know. Uh, <laughs> there's a lot of sarcasm in this episode for anybody who doesn't realize that. Um, and I look at a lot of the fighters that you work with, and it's really interesting to see. Number one, they, they seem to make way comfortably. I like watching the weigh-ins and look at people's body language and, and you know, the kind of how they move to the scales. A lot of your fighters make way very easily, but more importantly, they perform very well. They don't look deflated in the octagon. You know, they don't look like they are lacking energy. They look pretty vibrant, pretty healthy. And so you have a pretty good success rate. I, I would say, I don't know, from my eyeballing of the data, you must be nearly 100%, are you, with, with fighters making weight? And- yeah, I've never, had, I've never had someone miss weight in the UFC. I've had one or two times where I've cut weight cuts off for safety reasons. And, yeah. and like, yeah, I'm, I'm very okay with doing that, especially at the local level. I, I've, 
one, because I'm pretty good with a lot of the local promoters there and, and they kind of understand what I do. And I kind of say to those, the two times that we've had it, I've said to the athlete, I was like, look, if you were in the UFC and when you were losing 20, 30% of your purse, maybe we push it, but look, no one's going to care. And both of those fighters went out and they won the next night. Cause at the end of the day, you don't win by making weight. There's no, no medals or no yeah, prizes yeah. you're getting from stepping on the scale. It's all about getting back in that cage. And yeah, we've never had anyone miss weight in the UFC, but a lot of our conversations around there, they say city kickboxing is a good, is a good um, example. Like my conversation with Eugene and, and my role with the team isn't, yes, it's about making weight, but they're very much about, okay, like how do we get that 1% better every day? What can we do? And that's where we talk about the, you know, principles of performance nutrition leading up to that. And what are you doing during the fight week? How can we play around? Like making weight, I don't think in 2020 is that big of a secret. Definitely like not when I was going back and post masters trying to do all this weird stuff. Like there's a lot more information now. There's a lot more people. There's a lot more podcasts like this and a lot more information out there. I think everyone can probably get athletes to make weight. I think now it's kind of a game of like who can do that in the most efficient way where you're getting the best performance. And that's kind of where we're at as a team now. It's like, okay, we know that reducing carbohydrates, reducing fiber, doing these water loads and everything else. Yes, you can get down to weight. As a team, I have a rule with my guys. It's like, yeah, you can get them on weight on the scale, but if they look depleted, to me, you may as well made them miss weight. Like we need to send yeah. these guys out as healthy as possible because that's that's what they're paying us for. They're paying us to get a better performance that night. So, you know, we're playing around with, okay, do you really need to cut carbohydrates that aggressively? And how how far can we push that envelope that you're leaving carbohydrates to the last minute or if you're in the bath, can we get away with eating a bag of gummy bears and starting that reload process early? Can we get yeah. away with just manipulate things like that, where in theory it should contribute to a better performance. And I guess on the lower level, maybe it doesn't for, you know, schmucks like me and you that are just rolling around and jujitsu comps probably doesn't yeah. make a big difference. But for guys like Israel, guys like Brad Bridell, who's coming through the, the hottest division in the UFC guys like Dan Hooker who's like in the top five of the lightweight division, that probably 1% could make a difference. So I guess, yeah, it's, it's really focusing on the performance now, not so much of, okay, what do we have to do to make weight? Yeah, that's, that's, that's really interesting. Um, with, with those fighters with, that you work with and you speak about, you know, the, the weight cutting process during the week and so on, and these one percenters, um, how do you strike the balance, Jordan, in a fight camp or how do you communicate with, let's say the broader camp? As an example, use a city kickboxing one, right? Mm -hmm. Um, you got, you know, uh, what's the coach now? Eugene, is it? Eugene is the Eugene, head coach. Yeah. So you got, you got, you got a head coach. You've got all these fighters in a pool that you're working with. But then each coach may have, you know, additional, uh, each fighter may have additional coaches for specific drills or might work with different people for different things like jujitsu, wrestling, and so on. Then you may, they may, they all may have different strength and conditioning coaches um, or different sort of performance coaches. One guy might like to lift weights, other guy likes to do more kind of CrossFit, another guy does body weight, another guy goes, I'm not doing any sort of that stuff at all. I'm just going to focus on skills. And every kind of camp is going to be slightly different. Some are going to be more skill focused, they're going to be more about endurance. Other people have got to cut a lot of weight, other people have got to, they're just fine. How do you, how do you manage to kind of one beat an additional Lego piece that sits in that, in that, in that wall with all those people? And two, how do you then kind of raise the hand and go, you know, look, guys, the nutrition part here is one of the biggest things we need to get right, for example. How, how do you kind of manage that integration? Because there's a lot of, like any business and any team and any organization, there's lots of egos. And particularly in MMA, there's lots of people who want to be the alpha male. So how do you manage that whole um, sort of negotiation phase within those camps with all those different fighters? Yeah, I guess it, it, it's two parts to this. I think the first one is a lot of trust from the top. So like with Eugene, for example, there's uh, there's Eugene as the head coach, but there's a number of other coaches. You've got Andre who looks after wrestling. You've got Mike Ango, who's a world champion kickboxer who works with specific athletes who's doing a lot of their kickboxing. Then you've got guys like Twist who's doing a lot of game planning. Those guys are all getting together and looking after the technical side of it. And like you said, there's the strength conditioning. And I like to think of, you know, diet, strength, conditioning, recovery work, all this support to that. Because at the end of the day, these guys need to go in, they need to execute the game plan. What are we doing to support that? So at the end of the day, yes, Eugene needs to trust us that we are doing our job and that we are applying whatever we have to apply to that. More so within the support team, there needs to be a lot of communication. That's a big thing. So the guys probably share, there's probably about three or four strength conditioning coaches that the guys go through at City Kickboxing. 
understanding more so like what the training load is because I need to fuel that, right? So it's like, okay, what's the different training loads and getting them to break it down to dumb, dumb terms for a dumb, dumb like me so I can understand, okay, how much do I have to put in for this to make sure at the end of the week we're in that deficit? And then talking to their recovery coaches because that's another big thing, right? It's like, okay, dieting for a camp is pretty stressful, especially if you've got a big weight cut like and, and you literally just don't have that many calories. You're going to feel pretty bad. So it's talking to the recovery coaches and being like, okay, this is what I'm doing this week. I need to wind back on the calories. Yeah. You know, like, is there something you can do to help? So keeping that open and transparent communication between the support staff is really important. And then also like linking that back to the head coach and going, okay, huge, like, like whoever might be a bit flat this week would come in or hey, huge, if you want to push him this week, this is probably the week to do it where, you know, ahead of target, blah, blah, blah. And then I guess like the, the second part, of that question i think this is the most hated thing people dislike about um dietitians is saying it's very individualized right like uh, for, for city kickboxing for example during that COVID period they all locked down in the gym and they had like seven or eight of them just living in the gym i think it's 10 living in the gym and within there we had three or four that were fighting right and so all of them were on their own diet protocols but all of their diet protocols look drastically different because like you said, some of them are cutting a lot of weight. Some of them like Israel, who's pretty, pretty good with his weight can focus far more on strength conditioning and technical training where say other guys in the team who have to come down quite dramatically. And it was very interesting. A couple of the guys said, Oh man, it, it, it's, it's different to see, you know, what this guy's eating at different times of the day compared to like what you've got me eating and then like how that guy responds to it. And, you know, that guy's doing a bit more of a weight cut. So he's off doing his recovery a lot more often than what I'm doing. So I guess twofold, a lot of trust and open communication within the team. And then two, individualizing to make sure that you're giving that person a prescription that suits whatever their goal is or whatever they need. Does that create friction then within the team? Do people kind of go like, oh, why is Jordan getting that guy to eat that? And I can't even eat this. This is bullshit. Like this is, how can he get to eat like, you know, an extra cup of rice and he's smaller than me. And I've got to, like, does, does that sort of stuff happen with food or you know, does... I think a little bit, to be honest, I'd be yeah. lying if it is. So, so we, I'm a big fan lately experimenting. Shout out to Jackson Pios. He, he kind of planted the seed is, is like the refeeds with these guys to kind of spark their metabolism. And there's certain guys I've found in my experience that respond really well to refeeds, depending on their body composition. And like, say it's CKB, I've got one athlete who I've done a couple, few camps now with, and we use refeeds and they work really, really well. However, there's another athlete that I know if he blows out and he goes even a bit over that calorie limit, one, he's probably not going to lose the weight. And two, as a self-control thing, it's really difficult for him. He just has to stay on the bandwagon. So when those two guys are around each other, I definitely know there was friction because person A saw person B, you know, having a barbecue yeah. and having these higher meals. And it's like, what, why can't I do it? And it's like, well, and I explained it to him. It's like, you know, this is why. And they get it. They're professionals. It's their job. They understand that. But you're absolutely right. It, you know, it does create a little bit of, hey, why does he get to eat that? Why don't I? Yeah. The other, the other thing as well, Jordan, is like um, on the weekend just gone by, we've seen the fight um, where Uriah Hall has, you know, fought Anderson Silva. And Anderson Silva, I think, is he 45, 46? Yeah, 45, yeah. 45, you know. And I was kind of going, man, Anderson Silva's old. Then I kind of went, mm, I'm nearly that age. Um, so <laughs> I was like, uh, I'm kind of looking at Anderson fight, you know, and he obviously... Still in pretty good shape for his age and moves pretty well. And man, like you've got to be pretty well at that age to, to walk into an octagon and fight. I, I wouldn't do it. But he was starting to look a little bit kind of, you know, a bit of extra body fat around the midriff. And, you know, it kind of got me thinking about this whole thing about body fat and body composition and fighters at different ages. How do you cater for, or is it a problem with, you know, the different age ranges, you know, because trying to lose weight when you're 21 is heaps easier than when you're 40. So... Mm. How much of that is a factor in what you do? Yeah, absolutely. And again, it comes down to that most hated answer. Like it's very individual, right? And I think the whole set point theory, I, I do believe that to an extent is true that some people's bodies are more likely or they're more prone to losing weight and they can just drop the weight easier yeah, for whatever yeah. reason. It's genetics environment. They've trained it. They've just done it lots. And then some bodies just don't. I, I find it's definitely something within the weight classes I find I find like guys that are say at the higher end of it, like the heavyweights, it's percentage of their body weight, right? Like, so it's like to lose 10% off a heavyweight is quite easy, but to get 10% off a flyweight oh, is yeah. quite tough. So that's where it comes back to that body composition assessment at the start and understanding, okay, how much like fat mass 
do you have to actually lose? And is this actually physically possible? But the extra layer to that is like what you're alluding to is, well, to lose weight, it, it's manipulating your metabolism and, and getting your metabolism to release that stored body fat. And that's a whole new layer. And then what we see quite often with fighters is that they abuse their metabolism for lack of a better word. And they come in what we call hypermetabolic, where they may not be firing on all cylinders as much as they can be. And that comes from years of abuse with under eating, not fueling their training, overtraining, not recovering. So when you get athletes like that and say, let's say for whatever athletes there, they should be an RMR or resting metabolic rate of say 1600, but they come in and they blow a thousand. So to keep their body fueled, they use a thousand, they train, whatever, but to get them in a deficit, say to lose the weight, you need to be eating a thousand calories. That's not enough calories to support a healthy metabolism, right? You can make the weight, but over time, you're kind of taking jabs at their metabolism. And this is something that I know Dr. Carl Evans is kind of theorizing is that because we see this all the time, right? Athletes get older and it's harder to make that weight. And we think it's that maybe it's not so much an age thing. It's these constant jabs at your metabolism by cutting weight incorrectly that by the time you get up there, you've, you've, you know, cut the weight, you've eaten next to no calories. You've gone in this huge calorie deficit. So you're in debt to your body, thousands and thousands, if not tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of calories, you do your fight, whatever. And then what's every fighter do, they go through that post camp rebound hyperphasia where they just shove their body just seeks and destroys calories. Yeah. And then we've seen from like studies like the Minnesota starvation study, what that does to the body composition, you put that weight back on and then some, but then you've also put a little bit of fat mass on and then your metabolism may still be a little shaky. So instead of being at 1500 or whatever, you're at 1450. And so to get, lose that, that deficit next camp, you got to go in a little bit more of a deficit. And gets then the next camp, same thing. Yeah. Gets hard. So maybe it could be age maybe it could be i think definitely obviously your your metabolism slows as you age naturally that's a thing but i think in the fight context especially for these guys who are competing in their 20s and 30s i think that's a big part of it because you see guys frankie edgar is a good example who probably looked after his nutrition for a good amount of time and then he gets a bit older and then he just drops down like yeah, jose yeah. aldo as well you know yeah, like yeah. He, he gets down you know he's it's and you don't see that too often. It's more that guy, it's the opposite, right? Where guys kind of jab their metabolism and they have to go up a weight. But these guys, I would assume, have probably looked after it pretty well where they're in a position where it's like, okay, if I want to drop down a weight class, I still can. Yeah. I think, I think like just looking broadly as well across sports for older athletes as well, it, it is very sport specific. I think a lot of people, mm. you know, look at MMA um, particularly older guys look at MMA and think like that's what they should look like. They should have a six pack, an eight pack, but they might be training for, I don't know, a triathlon, whatever it is. It's not yeah. really kind of sports specific. People are looking at these guys going, that's how I should look or they look on the front of a magazine or when guys get into a fight um, and uh, not get into a fight, but when they have a fight in the octagon <laughs> and they look like, you know, they got these six packs and they're rippling and whatever. Four weeks later, they look like they're middle-aged men, some guys. Because they gain so much weight, like after maybe fighting at 155, they're back up to 180, 185, 190, 200, some people. And they look completely different. I've seen fighters out of camp and I'm like, Jesus Christ, you're a fighter. Like your guts are out like here. You put on a heaps of weight. And obviously that's what you're talking about. Then it gets harder and harder with those cycles. But I think it's important to understand as well for people that body fat does play a role, you know, as humans, we need to have a certain amount of body fat. There's this kind of misnomer that zero body fat is the goal to, goal to be because of it, it's aesthetically pleasing because of the front of men's health or men's fitness. Mm. But body fat is really important. And I think if, uh, I don't know if you've been watching that SAS show for in Australia where- I haven't, but I've heard yeah. plenty about it. What's interesting is like, it's interesting to watch that some of the more, even though they're bigger, the athletes, some of the more leaner athletes are actually getting cold quite quickly. Yeah. You know, especially when they do the, the water stuff, you know, because of low body fat. So I think it's really important for people listening to this who may not be in, in MMA or combat sports or weight cutting to understand that it's not all about just getting down your body fat to like less than 5%. We don't have to walk around like men's health models. Now, some people would say, well, that's Ian's excuse because he's getting older and he wants to have a little podgy belly. No, maybe, you're right. You're maybe, it is, right. maybe it is, but, you know, it's really interesting to look at this. The other thing on this point as well is for older people, What's really interesting, I was reading some studies in this last year, is that for people over the age of 65, having a BMI, and this is obviously a very crude measure, not body fat, but a BMI in between 25 to about 28, in around that zone, is actually better for them 
than being underweight or even in the normal ranges because when they get older and they get sick or they maybe have a you know to fall over and hurt their hip whatever it is that extra body fat actually serves as a you know as a kind of a reserve for them and helps them fight off colds flus infections whatever so this kind of thing a body fat is bad I think it's really interesting to start looking at outside the context of a specific sport about the benefits of these things. Yeah, absolutely. And I think uh, here, here's a little uh, piece of info for you. It, like you said, it's all contextual, but when yeah. I was doing my last year of my master's, my clinical placement was on in the oncology and pal care unit. And that's something, again, anecdotal. I don't know. I haven't looked at oncology literature in what, six, seven, eight years or whatever, but I noticed that the the people who were going through cancer treatment or whatever, the guys that were higher end of that, like BMI scale, who had the extra body fat. I don't, I'm trying to think of the right term to use here, but they seem to last longer in those final stages. Yeah, yeah. And, and again, I don't know. I haven't, I haven't looked at that research, but I think like you said there, it's really important to put it in context. And I think when we're talking about MMA and fighting, it's important to realize that one, it's a young sport. It's only 25 years since the UFC. And I think, you look at like other sports and you know hockey basketball they've had years and years of sports science research right and then Correct, yeah. they understand the sport and the science and what's best body composition and what's this for these i think in weight category sports like mma there's so many different components that go into what a good performance is and i know chris kirk who's uh, over in england he's i think he's dedicated something like five to ten years trying to figure out what is a good performance this and he still comes up short and we don't really know we don't know what a good performance is or what are the metrics that we're looking for so when people say hey what's a good body composition to be at for this weight class i'm kind of at a bit of a loss it's like well i don't know like and we've seen this all the time where sage northcutt the super shredded guy has got four percent body fat goes in but then he gets chinned and knocked out and it's like well does that having that low body fat and all that extra strength does that equate to a better performance you look at guys like mark hunt who's who's just a big bob right but he, he goes and he knocks people out and he technically has a good performance so it's it's a very interesting topic of conversation i think again it comes back to that assessment and understanding the individual right and i think when you work with these guys especially the females right you, you'll see at certain body fat percentages they seem to hit numbers if you can collect objective data not just subjective oh, i feel good i feel great but if you can look at you know counter movement jumps in the gym measures of recovery how their weight's actually coming down there seems to be each person will have a body fat percentage that is most conducive to their best performance during camp. And then they'll get to a probably an ideal body fat before that fight week and then go from there. And I've seen time and time again with guys where you do repeat camps with, they tend to follow that pretty similar trend. If you can, if you can do that post fight camp period properly and not blow out too much and you can hit those same numbers, especially with those elite level guys, it's almost like, it's just history repeating itself. Unless you're strategically manipulating that body composition, that's one of the goals. Yeah. They tend to like hit those numbers and that's where they're getting those, um, those uh, best performance. But again, it's a kind of an area where we don't really know. Yeah, it, it is interesting because people would think like, oh, you know, people have been cutting away for, you know, 27 years in the UFC, maybe longer in combat sports. But you're right. There's, there's, there's not much research. What would it be, hmm. 20 papers? If even yeah. 20 scientific papers, like, you know, people like Reed and Clint, the, the people you've mentioned are, are the leaders and probably the, you know, the kind of founders or Mount Rushmore of people who've really studied weight cutting as a science, the, the, you know, and I've been involved in some of those studies with Reed and it's, it's really interesting to, to be involved in them, but also talk to athletes and see all the crazy kind of shit that people do because it's still, it's so new. And the, the, the second part of that then is, Jordan, that what you've alluded to, which is probably the next frontier, is how do you do this with women? Because there's so many additional variables and you can't apply those, those conditions to women because there's, you know, monthly, monthly um, you know, cycles for uh, women's period. There's maybe pregnant, post-pregnant, um, body fat is higher in females. There's a whole host of things. And I'm not an expert in this area, but how, what... Obviously, that's why I'm talking to you. But what, what's the additional factors that you have to take into account when we're looking at females in, in, in MMA or any combat sports? Yeah, that's a good question. I actually had this conversation with someone yesterday who's been asked to um, put together kind of a bit of a position statement about this exact topic. And I kind of said to him, he was like, oh, mate, can you just from a practical point of view, what do you look out for? And I kind of have... I'm a bit in the middle with this. I think when we talk about female athletes and, and I'm very aware that I can get scorned 
either side, which I go with this. I think on the far left, there's the people who go, oh, it doesn't really matter. They'll just tough it out, whatever. It's all the same. And I don't necessarily agree with them. And then you've got people on the far right that say, you know, it's like the lunar cycle, you know, the she-wolf at this stage, you've got to do this type of exercise. And at this one, you know, take way more magnesium and exactly this type. And you've got to, um, this exact day, you've got to do high reps, low range, whatever it is. And I don't think we're at a point in the research where we're anywhere close to making recommendations like that. I kind of like to sit in the middle where it's like, yes, we're not quite there with the research and, but you cannot ignore this. It's absolutely something yeah, you need yeah. to be aware of. And what I do with my guys, and I'd probably say of the 30, 35 athletes I take on my pro list, I'd say 60, 70% of them are females. And we do this with all of them is where we track their cycle. Like we, one, are they on contraceptives or do they have a natural cycle is a big difference. And then you track their cycle and it's more gathering information because and again, I'm no expert in this and Georgie Bruin Bells and, you know, Craig and Christy Sales will probably speak about this much more than I can. But tracking their cycle and seeing, okay, well, at each stage, what happens at the cycle? When you're going through your luteal phase, what happens? When you're going through your follicular phase, what happens? When you're ovulating, do you retain water? When that progesterone's coming up, do you release water? When the estrogen's coming up, do you retain it? And then it's collecting all that information how you feel during training. If, if that particular cycle falls the week before a fight, what can we expect? Are you going to expect to hold water? Are you going to feel really fatigued? And then how does that change our approach? I think when you get into the real deeps of it, I've, I've seen people who kind of make these suggestions that, okay, like, like I said before, do your strength training on this day and kind of, you know, in team sports, you could break up the females into, you know, week one and two of their cycle and three and four and do that. I don't know pragmatically in a fight sense, how that would work when, mm -hmm. when a female kind of has a set training routine, I don't know how you would change it to accommodate her cycle. And I guess with a lot of the females I've worked with, yes, we're aware of it. Yes. We take very high notes of what happens in there. It's more when we get to that back end of the fight camp that it becomes really front of mind for me. It's like, okay, we're making the weight. Are we going to find issues when we're, if say you're about to go on your period, so to speak. And we know that, every time you go on your period, you put on two kilos of water and you feel really fatigued and you get all these cramps. And that just so happens to be two days before we're meant to jump in the bath or sauna and make this weight. So that's those type of things. Um, that's pretty much all we do with it. And then I kind of just refer, if I'm being honest, as a couple um, female athlete specialists, if it's really bad and you know, you find that it's impacting their performance, if, if they are getting cramps or that something's happening and their training is being you know, affected by it, that's when I kind of refer on. I would say though, if, if, they're, if they've got a good diet, if they're training hard, they're generally pretty healthy. A lot of the times, like girls are tough bastards. And I think if you're, if you're a female and you're getting into a sport like MMA, you're probably that little bit extra tough as well, probably a lot more than the extra guy. So a lot of them will just, okay, like this is it. I'll do what I can to sort it out and, and make it work, but I'll just get through it. And that can be, you can be too tough for your own good. But I think if, um, if you're on top of it and what happens at certain stages and you can plan for that, acute weight loss phase, you can get away with a lot. Obviously if there's background issues, you need to check that out medically. Yeah. 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 You're right. Women are tough bastards. <laughs> we, <laughs> I have to we, choose we, my words. You know, you're <laughs> right. You're, you're dead right. We like, um, about four years ago, my wife started jujitsu and, um, she started at the age of 44, 45. She started doing jujitsu and she's like five foot six and about 53 kilos. And she's really, and I've been off for the last year and a half with, with a neck injury so i've come back last week man she's like <laughs> for someone that's 53 kilos and i'm 80 kilos she can pin me to the mat it's hard to get out of that side control like and it's like jesus christ and she's she's been rolling just mainly with dudes like for the last year and a half she's been you know and someone like the other day we were rolling one of the guys was like i don't know 23 she's like i could be her mother and she was on his back like choking him and i was like <laughs> <laughs> you know it, it's it's great to see but you're right some women i think to stay in combat sports as a female, you're innately pretty tough. And then to stay into it, you're even tougher because it's predominantly, it's dominated by men. So you're right. Yeah, yeah. They have that extra grit. I've got a lot of respect for females who train, especially contact combat sports, we'll say like jujitsu and grappling and even MMA. It's, it's tough, man. It's, it's, I, yeah, yeah. I think it's tough as a man. Like it must be, you know, it's, it's, so uh, yeah, shout out to them. When we're talking there about kind of differences, um, it's probably not good to talk about differences at the moment with the American election looming. Uh, <laughs> but do you see any 
because from a scientific biology thing, we would look at difference between men and women um, with way cutting, as I just asked you about there. But do you see any ethnic differences, Jordan, between people? Like, you know, some like me, Celtic white Irish person versus a Samoan, you know, um, what's the difference there? Obviously, I'm a lot smaller and we'll get the shit kicked out of me. That's, that's a difference that we all know. But do you see any difference in how you would approach with those different types of backgrounds in terms of nutrition or is there any? There's definitely something. I, again, I'm not a, I'm not a, I, I don't even know what you'd call it. Is it, I don't know, ethno nutrition or something like that? I don't know. What I, you, I, what you, you know but, the, the, the reason I asked Jordan is because in, in the sleep world, for example, right, there is a little bit of that. We find that, you know, Polynesian people or African American are more at risk of obstructive sleep apnea and it's more about the shape of the mandible, right? Yeah, That's you're absolutely right. And then for Asian people with obstructive sleep apnea, the, the mandible sits back a little bit more. So it's more like a kind of a, skinnier neck it's not yeah. weight dependent so it's more those kind of physiological factors yeah. oh you're absolutely right absolutely like um i'm no expert in the area but i guess from my anecdotal experience working with lots of different people in there absolutely you're right like polynesians for example at naturally especially the polynesian females again i'm no expert in this and don't quote me on the biology but it seems at certain ages they just tend to fill out more and they tend to their body wants to put on that fat more mm. so it can be quite difficult for them to, to reduce that body fat. And I've had that, I work with a lot of people in New Zealand, right? And there's all, you know, from Tonga, Samoa, lots of different places. And that's a conversation I've had a few times with, with females kind of going in their late twenties and they go, I, I used to be this light, mm-hmm. but now I can't. And I almost just say, look, I don't know the exact science behind this, but it would seem that your body just wants to go there instead of kind of fighting it and putting yourself at this risk. Why don't we just look to maintain or optimize performance and but in saying that, like Carlos, who's fighting in, you know, 10, 15 minutes now, it's probably one of the strangest genetic people. He's, uh, I think he's Samoan, I think, don't quote me on that, but he's Polynesian and he's probably the most shredded person I've ever met all year round, can eat whatever. And it's just so obviously there's individual uh, case by case within that. But yeah, definitely like within the Polynesian community, there is that, and you know, Asians, even things with like sweat rate, which is a big part of say the acute weight loss period. There's uh, there's certain like Asians, I've definitely noticed won't sweat as heavily females to an extent won't sweat and sweating. Like we go back to the females, like during where they are in their cycle, that definitely affects it. I, I can't say that I, I, because I work so much with like Australian, New Zealand athletes, and I don't really delve out to the UK and America that I've, you know, really seen that like, mm-hmm. Hey, the Irish guys do better if we do a potato based diet or, or whatever compared to the Americans or whatever. But I think you're absolutely right. There is, there is something. And I know like, you know, chrononutrition and, and things like that. And, and going back to that ancestral nutrition, it, it makes sense. Like, it makes sense that there would be something like that. Whether I take a lot of that into consideration for what I do in my job, yes, to a point, but it's more like, okay, let's just see what we can do. If it's not working, if I'm trying to lose weight with, with you, Ian, and it's not working, and I'm doing everything I can, it's like, okay, let's explore it. Maybe it is something like that, but you're absolutely right. There actually is something there. I don't know if... um. I know exactly why I could explain it. Yeah. Well, I know, I know for me, if you want me to lose weight like really quickly and rapidly, you just take away carbs, take away potatoes and bread from me and I will drop weight really quickly. But I will be a cranky bastard, Jordan. Yeah. That's the problem. And you, that is the problem. And everyone else. I will be so cranky. Like I will be, you know, I will be on the verge of, you know, screaming and roaring. So anyway, uh, you speak about chronic nutrition. This is the last kind of technical question I have for you is, is there any evidence behind fighters or athletes eating at certain times to gain or lose weight? So for example, are you better off, you know, having your breakfast? If you wake up at six, you're better off having your breakfast at 9am as opposed to 6am when you wake up. Is there any sort of time dependent factors on people eating at these different times to gain or lose weight? If any? Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. It's a good question. Like, again, I don't know if I'm the best person to answer it, but there's definitely something like, like we were speaking about off air when we went to fight Island, right? Like that was a big worry for me because I definitely saw that where you change, like your, your body works on rhythms, like you know mm. better than anyone. And like your insulin, the way that it, like your circadian rhythm with your organs, say releasing insulin, you're going to be more insulin sensitive at certain times during the day. You see this in shift workers a lot. And I'm sure you, you've seen this with sleep, yeah, yeah. sleep patterns. Shift workers find it very hard to lose weight when you're constantly say swapping, eating your breakfast at midnight as opposed to 6am and then, you know, four days later, you're swapping that. I, I don't know the exact mechanism behind it. Anecdotally looking at it from my experience. Yeah, absolutely. That there's going to be times if you're changing your sleep, t- sleep cycle and you're trying to match your nutrition to that to lose weight, it's going to be hampered. And like, that's a big thing we do with our guys. Like we always support 
our three supporting pillars are like sleep, stress, and water, right? Get your water in, do some stress management and get regular eight hours of sleep. And, and I find I have, and you could attest to this guys that have disrupted sleep patterns. They're up all night or they're, you know, playing games, lots of blue light. Even if they're eating the right things, there's something that's going on and it's disrupting the pattern. It's disrupting the process. And whether that's your insulin tolerance, whether that's your ability to release fat, whether that's your body hormonally releasing more cortisol and you retaining water, whatever it is, there's definitely something that's going on when you disrupt that sleep pattern that interrupts this weight loss process. So we might have to talk off air about this, Jordan, in terms of designing a study, because this is actually exactly what I do on the, on the other part of my life, you know, which is I look at, you know, elements of sleep uh, disorders, shift work disorder, the effect on you know, obesity and so on and, and, and performance in shift workers. And you're bang on of what you're saying, because you may have people, this, this is very applicable actually for amateur fighters who are working shift work or rotating mm. shift work, maybe doing two days, two nights and four off, and are trying to get ready for a fight, trying to cope where they don't understand why they're gaining where. This, this is actually best illustrated with this example. If you and I, Jordan, are both 70 kilos, and you're doing, let's say, two days on, two nights, and four off. Let's say you're a firefighter, for argument's sake, and I'm a nine to five worker. For all intents and purposes, we've got the same resting metabolic rate. We consume the same amount of calories. Over the course of a year, from just you doing shift work, you will most likely gain up to five kilos over the course of a year. Mm. And the reason or the mechanism behind that is, and it's been well published in the literature uh, in shift work and sleep um, loss and, and deprivation out of the University of Chicago, is it's the, it's the dysregulation or the imbalance, if you want to call it that, between leptin and ghrelin, mm. appetite-regulating hormones. And this is the problem. So it's stimulating hunger at different times, um, and it's really hard to basically keep your weight managed. If we look, we just actually collected some data with 88 shift workers in a mining company. They want to fly and fly out. And this is slightly off topic, but it might relate back to, you know, amateur fighters or people trying to go elite, which is we found with these guys that were doing this shift work, a week on, a week off, a week of days, a week of nights and a week off. So people are like, oh, that's really cool. You get like a week off every three weeks and you get six weeks leave a year. We found with those guys that number one, high prevalence of shift work disorder, which is like a circadian rhythm disorder, like having constant jet lag, high prevalence of um, other sleep disorders, such as obstructive sleep apnea, which was also uh, interesting that 70% of the participants were either overweight or obese. So extremely heavy, right? So it's very interesting to see that. And within those workers, if your BMI was 30 or above, you are 12 times more likely to have obstructive sleep apnea than a regular person. So there's all these kind of links between kind of sleep, work, shift work design, your kind of design of your, of your life around it and nutrition. Because I often ask people when I deal with them or in companies, I'll ask them about like, what do you do during the day? What caffeine? And people go, why are you asking all those questions? What are you asking about what time I get up? And what, what, this is just a conversation about sleep. And I'm like, no, no, no. We've got to look at it holistically. We've got to look at the food. We've got to look at the caffeine time and the alcohol time. And when are you training? When are you going to work? When, what, what, when's your day off? When do you play video games? How much TV do you watch? Do you have a rest day? Do you not have a rest day? Because you've got to look at it um, in a holistic manner to work out what are the kind of balance of these variables and where you can start pulling on different strings to make these improvements. So... I think there's a lot of uh, a lot of overlap there in terms of you know shift work and, and occupational settings and what we do. Oh, absolutely. Even even as you're saying that, I'm kind of running through my head through our client list of, of the guys we know that do shift work, and all of them have had at one stage or another very problematic weight cuts. Not that they've missed weight, but with there's definitely been points in time when they've been either really stressed at work combined with that shift work. And I'm thinking of, of two nurses we have and then and then a guy that does overnight shift work for for the council or something like that and all of them all of them mm. struggle not struggle with their weight we can get it off but there's definitely a lot of adjustment and i find if they're consistent with it at least if they're consistent with it for a number of weeks it seems to help it's that kind of sporadic and again i'm just i'm just talking complete anecdotal experience where it's like three days at night time then they'll take you know a couple of days on the day and then they'll go back and it's like yeah. very all over the place we've always found that, yeah, that, that is uh, quite problematic. I think we should, we should just, we should get a study design. Like we were talking about all fair, like just in Fight Island where Reed was for all that time, 
you, you're always accommodating the US audience. Yeah, yeah, so you're yeah. always you're always changing your sleep. Like we had our sleep cycles. The guys were in bed at four p.m. and then they were up at midnight. And, and that's can't you can't get a stranger cycle for someone oh, for yeah. eight weeks who've been you know waking up at eight a.m. and then going to bed at nine p.m. You can't get a stranger cycle. And it's that was always a worry for me going into that week. Was okay, maybe acutely it's not long enough for for this to disrupt it. But how is this going to affect the acute weight loss strategies that I'm going to do with them if I put this in, is their digestion going to slow? Are they going to pass this fiber? Do I need to cut fiber? Are they going to be, is the water going to go through? Are they going to be, are they going to respond to the water load the same way? Like when I start cutting glycogen back, is it going to, and it seems kind of trivial where people would almost say, yeah, obviously what would it matter? But it was always something that was um, front of mind. And like I said, you're flying. I've never been part of a fight camp where so much of the conversation was centered around sleep and, 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 not that I was highly stressed out. And I think you relieved a lot of that stress with your advice, but it was, it was something that was front of my mind where, okay, how are these guys going to respond to these acute weight loss strategies? And then this rapid weight loss in this strange time zone difference, yeah, yeah. like you said, it's not like we can just pluck up a paper and go, okay, look at this. They did this. And, and this is what we should expect. And people are coming from all different locations. So people might listen to this and go, Oh, Jordan said you should sleep from four o'clock till midnight when you're on fire Island. Whoa. When's the fight? Is the fight for US audiences or is the fight going to be even earlier for UK audiences? Have they done something different? Where have you flown in from? Have you come from Vegas? Have you come from Europe? Have you come from Africa? Have you come mm. from Australia? It's all these variables. Um, what, would, what may help you, Jordan, in a few weeks is we have a paper about to get submitted, which is a consensus paper on travel and jet lag and athletes, which may help mm. um, people like yourself in this field. Before we wrap up, Jordan, I've got a, a, a kind of a fun question for you. And after this question as well, you can do a little plug of your website. But then I also want to ask you to hold the line about a study I want to do want to talk to you about, <laughs> which listeners will be like, oh, I wonder what you're talking about. We were designing yeah, something. Yeah. We're actually designing Anticip something really cool, actually. So I want to talk to you yeah. about that. Anticipation but, builds. Anticipation builds. Stay tuned. Um, Jordan, you've got to work with a lot of fires. You've got to see a lot of fires. Who's one of the funniest people or the craziest fires you've come across, not even that you've worked with, but you've met in one of these environments that really kind of made you laugh out loud and you were like, that person is completely different than I thought. Oh, oh, that's a good question. <laughs> Gee, I've met some characters. Um, <laughs> I think Forrest Griffin, I, I don't know why Forrest is coming to my mind because he's at, he's always at the PI, but he, he was he was definitely, when I met Forrest the first couple of times, I was, I was quite nervous. I was quite gun shy i think i saw i was like oh fuck. and i don't really get like that with a lot of yeah, fighters yeah. to be honest like we kind of work with like the who's who i remember when i met forrest just because i remember the first time any interaction i've had i think i was with athletes in a sauna and he kind of walked past and he just gave me this look and it was just it was like the look i feel if like your mother would give you when she said don't go to the cookie jar and eat the cookie but you went to the cookie jar yeah, ate yeah. the cookie and you thought you got away with it, but yeah, but your mom knew, like, I felt like he was giving me that type of look and I thought I was doing everything right, but I'd never spoken to him before that point. And I remember the first time I asked her, I think then we went to China a few months later and I met him there and I was like quite nervous. I was like, Oh, does this guy think I'm an idiot? This is, but then he was just yeah, very like very loud, very big personality, very, um, very forthcoming. Like we'll talk about anything. We'll, we'll explain anything to you. But yeah, I think, in terms of like strange, I think, I don't know why I just had this thing in my head. I was like, man, I don't think Forrest likes me very much. Like I was kind of expecting to get like a stern talking to or something. Cause at that time it was like, I know they just went on like the Joe Rogan podcast and there was a lot of heat around like weight cutting and everything. I was yeah, like, oh yeah. man, he thinks I'm one of the bad guys. Oh no, like I'm, I'm really trying out. I'm going to, I had like a speech prepared. I was like, I got to, I got to explain this to him and whatnot. And he was just like, oh, there you go. Like, blah, blah, blah. good to see you. Love your work. Blah, blah. And it's, yeah, I don't, I don't know why that just popped in my head, but that was definitely like one of the strangest, not strangest, but complete opposite interaction, which was what I was expecting. But it's, I, been, it's funny you say that because I met Forrest Griffin, I think back in 2010, I was in Boston for UFC 118, which was in BJ Penn for Frank Edgar for the second time. Um, Randy Couture was fighting James Tony as the core man event. So we went, we went mm -hmm. there. We did this kind of trip and we went... But I, I went to the bathroom coming out. Had like um, what was it like the, oh, like to have not like a, like a kind of a, like a fight. I don't know what you call it. Like a fan experience. Like it was on like for two or three yeah, days yeah. before the fight. Like I don't know what UFC Expo I think to call it. 
So I said to my wife, well, hold on there before we go. I was going to the toilet. I came out. And when I came out, I walked straight into Forrest Griffin. I was like, fuck, Forrest Griffin. <laughs> and he's a big dude. He's like, for oh, he's I don't know how the fuck he got to 205. I was like, <laughs> and we got a picture of him. My wife and I are like two little midgets beside him. You know, it's like tight. We're tiny. It's so funny. Yeah. But um, yeah, on, on, it is interesting when you meet people, um, what they're like. You know, some people are really different and some people are actually quite fun. Um, so, yeah. yeah. I don't know. All it's the a real, the, the most it's a real thing, annoyed. I guess. Yeah, it's a real thing, right? Like, I think social media is a funny one because some people like Israel, I think, is very transparent. Like, what you see on social media is what you get. There's no, yeah, yeah. you know, there's no, this is what he's actually like. And this is like where you see people like Kobe Covington, who's very much like puts up this front and it's a, it's a real act. And act, then he's yeah, like yeah. actually quite a nice guy. And we're kind of lucky like that. I think that kind of trickles down from Eugene and one of most of the guys like I work with like what you see is what you get yeah, type yeah. thing. But yeah, yeah, this, it's fighting. Like these guys fight for a living. Uh, they're not right in the head to start with. So you're always going to oh. get some characters. Yeah, 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 for sure. Yeah, yeah. very good. Right, so Jordan, if people want to follow you, um, do, you, do you sell those little cool, do you sell those cool t-shirts you have there at the TFDs? Do you sell them on your website? I do, I'll, I'll, I, I, do I do not sell them, but um, I do send them out to uh, select people and I'll send oh. you out one. I definitely right. will. I'm going to send you. You should look at them be selling them. Yeah, I used to do it right. Like I used to only send out TFD shirts. I know we're getting a little sidetracked here, but I, I I realized after a little bit and then after I got a little bit of a following that people were kind of paying me to do like, you know, a six-week plan or whatever and do a weight loss. And then they'd just drop off the face of the earth. And and I it, it was very bizarre for me because, I, I don't know, my TFD to me is just something I do at my laptop and I, I'm very passionate about it. I think yeah. I kind of forget that it's kind of this this whole thing with all these moving parts and whatnot. And I found that people were, were doing this and we tend to send out our new clients like these shirts and whatnot. They pay for it. They pay for everything, pay for the whole eight weeks and whatnot. And then they just drop off the face of the earth. But then I'd see they were taking pictures on Instagram and photo, and I was, and I'd kind of be like, oh, maybe, maybe it is something that people want. So maybe I'll, I will start selling them. But right. I usually now don't, don't send out a shirt until they finish their six or eight week plan right. or whatever. They're doing. <laughs> <laughs> um, so Jordan, how can people follow you? How can they follow your work? How can they get a hold of you if they want to work with you as a fight dietitian? I actually read recommended you last week as well, by the way, on the podcast. Oh, Reed. I'm not going to recommend him back because he, he beat he me up too yeah. much in Fido and then beat me up too much. I'm, I'm still salty on him for it. So, uh, but um, if you want to get in contact with us, the, the email is probably the best. If, if it's work related, uh, info at the fightdietitian.com is probably the best um, spot. That, uh, I personally don't take on too many clients these days, but we've got a few other dietitians in the team that I've spent the last 12 to 18 months training up, which is um, yeah. who they can take on and which is really good. Um, we're pretty active on social. So Instagram, the underscore fight dietitian, we kind of have a, uh, a pack to post every day of the year, Monday to Saturday. So we put out quite a, a lot of information, uh, Facebook, the fight dietitian. And then just this year I jumped on Twitter. It's at fight dietitian. And, um, I, I hugely regret that because Twitter is a scary, scary world. And there's a lot more trolls on Twitter, especially in the MMA world. I've never been, yeah. never really been trolled. I've been trolled a little bit like, um, on YouTube and whatnot. And people like, especially around fight weeks, they'll, they'll make fake accounts and troll, troll us. But, um, and then I got on Twitter and I was on there for about an hour. And then I got like four or five people being like, and I was like, I don't like this place. I don't like Twitter at all. Yeah. I just deleted my account this year. Cause I was just sick of fucking assholes to be honest with you. Yeah, I sick it's, of people. It's... And I just, and I was getting into these battles messaging people, you know, you know, and, and they were real people, not robots. And there's just a, people are very good. You know, um, that's one thing I like about combat sports and coming over of a career in the military and, playing rugby growing up and then combat sports mm. people say stuff to your face and it's great you can just clear the air but on twitter no nah. some of those people if they got a smack in the mouth will cry straight away um, <laughs> but anyway that's a different story so i just deleted my account this year because i was just i had enough for any time you log in it was just negativity and that's why i stopped watching the news as well not interested in negativity i'm interested in improvement and, and making things better i'm not interested in assholes you know i'm interested in, in advice to make me better and i'm interested in stuff but just downright assholes not interested in it so yeah, instagram great 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 one to follow you on jordan there uh maybe not twitter um and then you can hit up your website as well and info yeah. at fightdietitian.com. But you also have a podcast as well, Jordan. You've got lots of old episodes there yeah. that have been out yeah, recently. Yeah, yeah. We've got people the... go back and harvest those for lots of good knowledge. Yeah, the Fight Science Podcast. It was kind of like the thing that I wish I had all those years ago when I did that first weight cut where yeah, I absolutely yeah. slaughtered myself. And, you know, and we get a lot of um, 
top experts like yourself who, who've come on the podcast before. Reed's been on. I'll probably get him on again to talk about. Um, nah, I probably won't get him on because I'm still salty no. at him. But, um, <laughs> you know, we get who I would consider, and they don't like me saying it, but I would consider world leading experts. I think in the area of combat sports nutrition, this is something I found very early on. There's a lot of um, quote unquote bro science that gets around. Oh, heaps. Yeah. I, think, I think something that I learned very fast in this area area was um just because you work with elite level athletes doesn't necessarily make you an elite level practitioner and i learned that very fast kind of peeking into certain teams who were working with athletes who were very elite and that kind of struck a fire in my behind to really you know improve this area and get good evidence-based science out there because i could see or had the foresight of seeing that go downhill very very fast so the fight science podcast is kind of that area and community that i wanted to create where people can go Lots of different topics, sleep, lots of nutrition, fight strategies, fight camp strategies, all these lots of different things, new research, where they can hear it from credible experts who are adequately educated. And I think for me, when I started the Fight Dietitian, that was a big backbone of it. So yeah, the Fight Science Podcast, we try to release episodes every couple of weeks. Excellent. Hold the line there, Jordan. I'm going to stop this recording. Thanks very much uh, for your time today. Really appreciate it. No, thanks for having me, mate.